Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And it's been at least a couple of weeks since any of the major sports leagues did anything staggeringly hypocritical in light of their past lawsuits to present the scourge of legal sports betting. So we were due, John. Uh, on Tuesday, the NFL announced the creation of a job solely focused on the league's connection to the sports betting industry, naming David Highhill the NFL's first vice president and general manager of sports betting. Yes, it's 2022, and someone is in charge of the NFL's <laughs> sports betting division. John, how loudly is your hypocrisy alarm sounding on this one? Or, or is it time for us to just let it go, since it's been several years now since the leagues were still pretending to hate? sports betting. Yeah, that's a fair point, Eric. Although the sports league sued New Jersey for six years. So maybe we get six years of okay. sarcasm return. So <laughs> a little time left. But now I have never abandoned my stance. The league's never hated sports betting at all. Right. And so why did they pretend? Problem is that with PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act 1992, by the way, uh, Congress gave five sports organizations power that has never given any private organizations before or since in 200 plus years. That being the right for the leagues and the NCAA to sue a state to stop sports betting. They could intervene themselves. Department of Justice was not involved in the case for all six years, by the way, nor did they have to be. The leagues were given that incredible power. Well, the NFL is so powerful. They're not afraid of anybody, right? Well, guess what? Everybody has a reason to be afraid of Congress since they can make your life pretty miserable or your league for that matter, if they're unhappy with you just by passing a new law. So the league soldiered on telling Congress what it thought they wanted to hear. Now, by four or five years into the PASPA saga, attorneys for the leagues could have told league executives how the saga was going to turn out. And I could have done it myself after reading thousands of pages of briefs. That's why the league seemingly pivoted on a dime after the May 14th, 2018 ruling by the Supreme Court. But like an NFL game, the league itself had their first 15 plays scripted before this game even started. Yeah, that's a, that's a good breakdown. Um, the six-year rule is, is uh, maybe that maybe that makes the most sense. Uh, so what are we at? We're only four years yeah. in, but I, I'm inclined to say we're hitting that point where okay. there might be a moratorium on holding their mm. feet to the fire for their pre-PASPA views, even though, as you said, it wasn't really their views. It was their uh, the views they pretended to have. Look, they're hypocrites. They know they're hypocrites. They know we know they're hypocrites. It's all about money and we know it's all about money and they know we know it's all about money. You know, it's certainly hard to uh, criticize them for creating jobs connected to sports betting at this point with the aim of a maximizing the money the league makes off it and b trying to keep NFL betting on the up and up. It's just the logical thing and the right thing to do at, at this point. Uh, I'll also note that it would be more fun for us as writers and podcasters if the guy's name was David High Horse instead of David High Hill. But, <laughs> like you know, play the cards were dealt. Yeah, it, I, I kind of can't let go. I was in a, a Trenton uh, courthouse in 2014 when the leagues honestly sought a temporary restraining order because they said that they could prove that there would be irreparable harm Right. Should Monmouth Park, a little uh, a horse racing track on the Jersey Shore, 
offer Las Vegas-style sports betting for up to four weeks until the federal judge decided whether to move the case forward. So, and they, and they won. So irreparable harm, if for four weeks in the summer or fall of 2014, Monmouth Park could offer sports betting like Las Vegas and, and all of Nevada has for 70 years. Uh, that was strange to me at the time. And I got to tell you, I'm not seeing a lot of irreparable harm. So <laughs> I may go the full six years. All right. Well, you, you get two more years to uh, hold your grudge <laughs> if you want to. I, I might be letting go of mine. All right. Fair enough. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 198 of Gamble On. No hypocrisy here. Gamble On has supported legal sports betting since day one. If you missed any of our previous 197 hypocrisy-free episodes, <laughs> they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by U.S. Bookmaking Director of Sports Betting Operations, Robert Walker. He'll share his thoughts on whether it's wise to take bets on events like last week's NBA draft, why the WNBA is his favorite sports league, and what advice he gives to people who want to make parlay bets. But first, it's been a suitably busy week, I would say, in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We start this week with a news story that may turn out to be a non-story, but as of our recording Thursday morning, it remains a major looming threat. We are on the verge of a possible casino workers strike in Atlantic City. Demanding higher wages, casino workers are poised for a walkout Friday at four of the nine AC casinos, Borgata, Caesars, Harrah's, and Tropicana, with Hard Rock set to begin striking two days later. There's never a good time for a strike in Atlantic City from the local economy's perspective, but this would be a particularly bad time as summer is the busy season. We're heading into the 4th of July holiday weekend, and from July 14th to 20th, Atlantic City is hosting the NAACP's National Convention. John, you've been covering this story closely for NJ Online Gambling. What do you think the chances are that a strike is avoided? How long could a strike last? And how damaging would it be if there is indeed a prolonged worker strike in Atlantic City? Well, I think there's going to be a settlement, mostly because the casinos can afford it now. If you look closely at the casino financials, revenue is back to 2019 levels, but staffing and therefore costs are not. So profits are up, you know, beyond all the tragedy of lives lost with COVID, everything else is, you know, uh, a footnote, asterisk, trivia, whatever. Uh, but one of the things that happened is the when the casinos had to close their doors and lay off all the workers, they only hired them back slowly. And eventually they realized there seemed to be a sweet spot where you were properly treating the guests as before, just with fewer employees. And if you had to cut a corner here, there were fewer restaurant hours, for instance. Well, customers are just thrilled to be back in the action at all. They don't demand what they used to demand. Right. So, uh, you know, that said, there's a risk for the casinos, too. You know, just two weeks ago, the casinos held a job fair trying to fill thousands of full-time and part-time jobs. It's a weird combination. The casinos don't need as many jobs as they used to have to offer, yet they also need more employees than they have now. So if there is a strike, where are the casinos going to go to get replacements? I don't think they know. Lastly, the whole city needs to solve this before the NAACP convention. I wrote for NJ Online Gambling last week about the no AC and AC disaster that was the 1964 Democratic National Convention. You know, the national media piled on the city for lack of rooms, room service, and yes, in many cases, lack of air conditioning during a long, hot summer week. Now, the NAACP is a major league event held in Detroit and San Diego the last two years, for instance. If this goes well, Atlantic City officials can seek more events with a solid week of success on the resume to 
other such major events. This is the big chance, AC. Don't blow it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're a gaming industry podcast. We tend to look first at these stories from the industry point of view. You know, what does it mean for the casinos? How much money will they lose if the staff goes on strike? Um, but I did want to pause and, and note the workers' perspective. Uh, I looked yeah. it up. Uh, I'm, I'm not taking a side. I'm just noting some of the statistics they've put out there. Uh, the average wage for non-tipped casino workers is $15.81 an hour. The average wage for tipped casino workers is $8.80 an hour before tips. And the so-called living wage for an adult with no children in Atlanta County is $18.83 an hour. So see where they're coming from. Um, a union survey found that 61% of casino workers struggled to pay their rent or mortgage at least once yeah. in the past year. A lot of the casinos uh, are understaffed, which leaves the staff that is there overworked. So again, not taking sides. I'm just saying you can see where the workers getting ready to strike are coming from. You know, a couple bucks more an hour would make a difference in the lives of a lot of them. Uh, but at the same time, a casino is a business. Uh, some of them have huge profit margins and can afford to pay everyone better. Some of them don't have such huge profit margins. So um, in the end, I'm landing where you are. Uh, I'm much less educated on exactly what's happening here, but I still agree with you that it would seem likely that a resolution is going to come. Um, you know, the casinos will concede enough, I would think, to avoid having no staff on July 4th weekend, or at least uh, extremely limited staff. Um, probably just a matter of waiting until the last minute to negotiate down to the penny and concede as little as possible. And so, you know, we'll see who blinks and when and how much, but uh, you know, Borgata, for example, can much more easily afford to bump all these salaries up a little than it can to potentially turn off tens of thousands of customers with a total disaster of a holiday weekend where the rooms aren't getting cleaned, the customers can't get a drink, etc. So this probably turns into not much of a story in the end. But, you know, if we're wrong, it is, of course, a very major story in the casino industry. Yeah. And the hard part is with a major uh, labor union, um, you take uh, 2016, the last strike, which was of Trump Taj Mahal, and the labor union demanded certain uh, uh, concessions, which is fine, except the owner, Carl Icahn, said, I'm not going to do that. And they said, well, you have to do that. And he said, OK, I'm shutting down. So a couple thousand employees are out of work, right. which has ripple effects in the entire Atlantic County economy. Uh, that county was number one in foreclosure at that point in the country as five casinos had closed in less than two years. And so, uh, but, but, but the labor union can point to, Hey, you know, we're not kidding around. We demand certain things. And if you don't do it, you know, we'll, we'll go to the mat for it, which is sensible in a macro picture. Right. Uh, Cause it, it tells other casinos what they might do, right. but in the micro is employees on the ground level, they don't have jobs anymore. And so it, it, the whole thing, it it just, there's no, there's no reason now, especially when Atlantic city is not in the desperate straits was then for, for this to continue. So I'm hoping on Friday, I'll say that uh, a settlement's announced for all nine casinos and let's just move on. Have a great summer. Right. All right. Well, moving on from Atlantic City here on the podcast to Las Vegas, uh, let's talk about the World Series of Poker. We're now one month into this year's series, 
And we're just a couple of days away from the start of the main event, which has four separate day ones, the first of them coming this Sunday. But in terms of the first month of play, the big story is that there haven't been any huge stories. Uh, No superstars have won bracelets yet, although Phil Ivey had a runner-up finish. And Steve Albini is a superstar in the world of music production, uh, if not in poker. He won a bracelet. Uh, Other notable names who have won bracelets include... Alex Foxen, Brian Hastings, Jeremy Osmus, Adam Friedman, Dan Smith, and Scott Seaver. Notables if you're a hardcore poker fan, but not exactly mainstream stars. Um, One winner worth singling out is Daniel Zak, who has won two bracelets already in a pair of non-hold'em high-low events. Uh, Other developments include... COVID keeping some players out of action for a stretch, most notably Phil Helmuth, who got the virus and missed most of the first week of play. Uh, Scott Seaver, whom I listed moments ago among this year's bracelet winners, buying into the $1,000 flip-and-go tournament 43 times and failing to win his opening table, which is almost entirely a matter of luck, all 43 times. And this year's Hall of Fame finalist being announced, uh, and the list including one gamble-on guest, Norman Chad, who has been nominated as part of a duo with broadcast partner Lon McCarran. There's also optimism, based on the numbers so far, about the all-time record for the main event field size falling. Uh, John, anything moving the needle for you so far at this year's WSOP? And do you want to try to guess the number of main event participants, which we will know the final tally of a week from now? Now, I want to say that months ago, I predicted a record number of entrants, or at least more than you predicted, but I could be wrong. Remember that? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's ringing a bell. Okay. Yeah, that's for the main <laughs> event. So give me 5% above the previous record, whatever that wow. is. Wow. So. Okay. Look that down. And for the litany of names you gave, yeah, I am in that not tiny group of casual followers who will not watch the action, you know, on ESPN or wherever it's on now, no matter what, unless there's an Ivy or Helmuth or Daniel Negreanu or whatever involved. So, you know, that is that is a crucial segment of audience that, you know, we're only going to watch the few players that we know. I don't think Texas Dolly's involved this year, but um, you know, that, that we'd watch the rest of it. We're probably not going to do it. So they definitely need a big name to uh, have a big run to get some numbers. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of two things. Either you get a superstar at the final table. That's what one thing they're always rooting for or get a woman at the final table. They're always rooting for that too, because it has been so long since that has happened. Although uh, quite a few in recent years have come painfully close, but not quite made it. Um, So for the main event number, the the record is 8,773. That was set in 2006, the year that friend of the podcast and John McEnroe sound alike Jamie Gold uh, won uh, won the top prize. Um, So 5% on top of that is 400 something more. You're looking around 9,200 or so is your prediction. I'm going to say still that the record does not quite fall this year, but that it's darn close. I'm going with uh, 8,507. So we'll see. We'll see who's closer. But if you did give me like plus 150 odds on the record being broken, I I think I'd take that. There's definitely a real chance. Now, it's going to be a bad beat if there are like. 8,770 and we're three players short. And it turns out that there are like five people who came to Vegas to play and got sick with COVID and couldn't play. Um, Hopefully it won't come down to uh, something that close. I want to do a, you cannot be serious McEnroe joke, but, um, but those (laughs) seems reasonable, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good time of year for people to 
they have free time to watch mm-hmm. something. So that's why I say I hope, uh, you know, one other thing you mentioned, uh, you know, it'd be a celebrity or a woman in the final. Uh, there's something called the moneymaker effect. I seem to remember that also. can be. <laughs> yeah, although that's kind of past because uh, now, you know, so that was based on at the time the unknown everyman amateur wins it and inspires others to uh, to to give it a shot and, and chase the dream and pay the $10,000 and see if they could win it in future years. And that's kind of, I, I would say, the the effect is sort of reversed at this point that uh, you don't want an everyman nobody to win it. That's yeah. happened a few times now. Now, like you're saying, you want a big name, if not to win it, at least to, to make the final table and, and keep people interested, someone they're familiar with. Um, a few other uh, things to note here. Um, the, the Scott Seaver thing with the 43 buy-ins to the flip and go, it's really amusing um, to remind listeners that the flip and go, we discussed this with Daniel Negranu last year. It's where, you buy in 10 players at a table, you play one hand where you're automatically all in um, you're, you're dealt three cards and decide which two to use. So it's not quite a hundred percent luck, but it's really close. Um, and if you win that one hand, now you're in the money and it turns into a regular tournament from there. It basically saves you all the time of grinding it out to try to get into the money. But of course it's total luck, whether, whether you do. So you can play a bunch of these single tables for weeks leading up to the start of the real tournament part of the tournament. And um, if I did the math right, there is a 1.077% chance of losing 43 of those in a row. So not quite as uh, puny as I, as I might've guessed um, the chances were, but still, you know, only one in a hundred times, are you going to try 43 of these and, and not win a single one? Um, I should note, I'm seeing precious little online complaining about the Paris Valley's host combo, uh, of course, in its first year. Now, I'm sure that some things have gone wrong and that there are some things to complain about, but it appears, based on the lack of outrage that I've spotted, appears to be going fairly smoothly, uh, it seems. Um, again, I'm not I'm not there on the ground this year as I was uh, used to be uh, several years ago. Um, and the last thing I want to hit on is just the Hall of Fame nominees. It's kind of an interesting bunch. There are three first-time nominees, uh, Josh Aria, Kathy Liebert, and Brian Rast. I highly doubt it will be one of them getting in. The holdovers are Norm and Lon, the, the broadcast duo, Lane Flack, who died last year at age 52 of a drug overdose, uh, Bertrand Elke Grospelier, Mike the Mouth Matisau, Michael the Grinder Mizraki, tournament director Matt Savage, and former Poker Stars owner Issei Scheinberg. There's been a lot of support for Scheinberg for a long time. Uh, he's almost certainly the most important industry figure not yet inducted. I could see him getting in. I could see Matt Savage. I could see Mizraki. I could see the late Lane Flack. Or I could maybe see Elke. If I had to bet on someone, I think I'd go with Lane Flack getting in. He has the resume. It's a sentimental vote. That's my prediction. But I would say that Issei Scheinberg is the most deserving and the most overdue. Well, I've written a little bit about Scheinberg years ago, and uh, that's a little bit of a complicated case. So it is. That's <laughs> sort of like the Hall of Fame and steroids, uh, shall I say? You know what? Uh, what do people do with all that? So um, I'm gonna guess he doesn't get in yet. Yeah, I mean, there there is a big push behind him, but yeah, he's certainly polarizing, and there are some people who will probably never vote for him. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe Lane Flack is the safer bet for this year. 
All right, we finished the news segment with a handle and revenue discussion focusing on New York State, which releases figures not monthly, but weekly. And those figures were particularly eye-catching for the week ending June 19th, as that week in New York, Caesars Sportsbook lost money. On $38.2 million in betting handle, bettors beat Caesars to the tune of $962,000 for the week, the first week of negative GGR for the sportsbook since it launched in January. In general, the weekly handle numbers have come down considerably from where they were at launch, which probably has a little something to do with the excitement and promos wearing off, but also has a lot to do with the slower spring sports schedule. Still, we're now seeing weekly state handle numbers around $250 million, which means monthly totals in the $1.1 billion range, which isn't as high as the highest highs in New Jersey, but is still beating New Jersey for the top spot in this season. Uh, New Jersey, for example, dipped to about $766 million in handle in May. Uh, anyway, the current New York handle rankings are one FanDuel, two DraftKings, three Caesars with everybody else way behind. John, what catches your eye among these New York numbers? Yeah, well, somebody at Caesars woke up rather belatedly from the early days of 2018 in states like New Jersey, when DraftKings and FanDuel completely outmaneuvered them and all casino companies, really, not just customer acquisition, but getting their existing customers, in their case, daily fantasy sports customers, to buy into sports betting. You know, then in the last 18 months or so, somebody figured out that even if they can't climb higher than number three in a state like New York, that's still a good place to be. So a billion dollars would only seem like a billion commercials later. Here we are. And Caesars is up there. Um, and yeah. Yes, the slower summer numbers for New York seem about right. No great worries there. You know, still at some point, I think either the 51% tax rate or the method of measuring gross gaming revenue in that state has to give. You know, it's not much of a partnership when a state just has to pay the salaries of some regulators and auditors and such. While sportsbooks have fierce competition that has, has to lead to such giant marketing costs to stay afloat. And they only they don't even get half. So, you know, it feels like an experiment, as was New Hampshire's 51% tax rate. But their DraftKings has a monopoly, so it's not sexy, but it's manageable. I don't see how 51% tax rate and competition is viable in the long term. And I expect in the next year or so, uh, New York will adjust something uh, to give these uh, uh, operators a break. Because uh, not that you know we feel sorry for the operators, but if they can't make money, eventually they may just walk away. That does, that does nobody any good, including the customer. Yeah, I know. I think it's uh, Senator Adabo who has talked a little bit yeah. about uh, wanting to see a few more operators come into the state, which would then lower the tax rate once it goes past a certain number. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe that will uh, eventually happen. You can get them down from the 51% rate to, I think, something like 36% if they get to. Uh, 14 sports books, I think. Uh, I may or may not have the numbers exactly yeah. right, but those are the numbers that are kind of in my head. It's a little more manageable if you get down around 36%. Um, I will just quickly pat myself on the back for a good prediction. Um, based on our podcast betting bankroll, I don't make too many good predictions, so I need <laughs> yeah. to single them out and celebrate yeah. them. But you may recall that after Caesars got off to a hot, hot start and was number one in New York the first couple of weeks, I said they would quickly settle in at number three behind FanDuel and DraftKings. So maybe that was obvious, but I'm still going to pat myself on the back for it. Um, a weekly loss seems like no big deal to me. You know, I figure if yeah. more states reported every week, we would hear about this happening with a given sports book in a given state fairly often. Now, if Caesars takes a loss in New York for the month, they should be more concerned. Um, mm -hmm. But one week, not a huge deal. And if they're smart, 
they'll put a little PR push behind spreading the word, you know, betters beat this sports book for nearly a million dollars. This is a beatable game, et cetera. So got to seize on these opportunities to turn a loss. Into yeah, we're not good at this better. So you should go with us because because right. you win. We lose. Right. Exactly. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. On the heels of last week's NBA draft, which saw betting markets swing wildly due to what turned out to be an inaccurate report from Adrian Wojnarowski, a lot of folks in the sports betting industry found themselves asking the question, should we really be allowing wagering on this stuff? Joining us now is a bookmaker with more than 30 years of experience, having run the sports books at the Mirage, Bellagio, MGM Grand, Mandalay Bay, and Stardust before his current role as director of sportsbook operations for U.S. bookmaking. And we know based on his Twitter account that he has clear opinions on this draft betting business. He is Robert Walker. Robert, welcome to Gamble On. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So he, here was your tweet last Thursday. Quote, I know I'm old but I still can't believe booking the NBA draft or NFL draft is legal. Someone knows the outcome just in case it wasn't clear. End quote. Uh, I'm curious, do you expect things to change after last week's draft that either more States will decide they shouldn't allow draft betting and Oscars betting and that sort of thing, or that more sports book operators will decide it isn't worth it to them to offer it. Yeah. So the problem with these events, particularly is the proportion of sharp play you get compared to the casual better. You know, the casual better may put five or $10 on it, but the, the, the bulk of the wagers are from, from people that are sharp and, uh, and, and can get information quicker uh, than you can. So the question is, why would you want to put yourself in that position? So, you know, if it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you're B2B, like if I'm at the Mirage and I, and we have a party and we're hosting, you know, guests and everything else. Well, maybe it makes sense. But if I'm, you know, if I have a mobile app and I'm booking to the sharpest players in the world, uh, I'm not sure that it makes sense. And, and I know here's what's funny about these propositions is everybody goes into it, says, we'll just take low limits. Yeah, we'll just give a hundred bucks here. And it never works that way. You know, there's always somebody that gets a thousand or, or multiple wagers on it. So, uh, you know, I, I I feel like I'm showing my age a little bit, but there was a time in Nevada where under no circumstance would that have been allowed. And I think I think you've seen Nevada perhaps and other places soften up because everybody wants it. And and I'm torn because it's still entertainment, right? So you talked about the Oscars. There's still that inter, you know, that's what we preach, right? We're all about entertainment. But at the end of the day, um, that's all fine and, and, and dandy, but the, we're still struggling against the sharp players. And that's the bit way it's been for 30 years. So it's, I'm torn between wanting to let this casual player have fun and have a good time, you know, make their $10 wagers uh, and then battling the, the professional players. And it's, I think these two particular events are literally impossible to do that, to balance that. So, so I, yeah, for the sports books, then I, I guess it is a little bit of a, a balancing act of, you like it as it can be a marketing tool that provides some customer satisfaction, but, but you have to make sure you're not going to finish so far behind on it that, that it wasn't worth your investment. But I, I guess like in the mobile sports betting world, is there that sort of sense of, well, if all the other sports books are offering betting on the draft, it's going to hurt us with customers if we don't offer it. Is that something that you have to think about? 
Yeah, that's that's always so. The same thing you can argue with college basketball. You know, when we went from 100 teams to what now 300 teams, right? So I think uh, uh, people like me were reluctant to do it because there's no liquidity in those markets, right? So you you add all these, and they're just for sharp players. I mean, sharp players are playing it, but then there's the that, that's the that's the catch, right? So everybody else is doing it. Do we have to go in there and do it? And it, it, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, to put those games up and and now most of us are booking it reluctantly you know we uh, some are booking it because they they want that play but others like me are booking it reluctantly we don't really want that play but we have to have a full offering so it's 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 always the case with with these type of things it's the same with derivatives and props right so there was a you know we used to just do props for the nfl and we tried to do props uh during the regular season because it was so uh you know popular with the players with the betters and nobody bet it. But now if you don't have 500 props on an NFL game, people are literally measuring, saying, hey, this place has 500 props. You guys have 400. What's going on here? And, and those props are never bet, by the way, unless you're off and then the sharps hit it. But I think it just you want you look at these and you just want options. So I think there's a, a and, and obviously with mobile, especially there's a tremendous pressure on retention. Right. So if you're going to spend this money on retention, you have to have some type of an app that 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 allows that right and so th- it's it's something that we're not really used to in nevada and uh and something that we're dealing with now even in game betting for the most part we're not really you know we're just a few years past but really from having a full array of in-game betting and it's, it's foreign to us so uh where it's been popular in europe and everywhere else for a long time but so yeah there's there's that it really comes down to how do you once again how do you control the sharp player and it's uh my opinion has always been: don't kick out the sharp player. Use them uh, for information. But if you're if you're taking a thousand from them and and nothing else, and especially in the NBA, it was magnified, right? Because people were getting twenty five to one, ten to one, five to one. It's literally it's it reminds me of the Holyfield uh, Tyson fight. I mean, it was twenty five to one, and I got to the Mirage. That's my first month at the Mirage. We lost millions of dollars and. Uh, and the damage had been done. I couldn't do anything, you know, because people were taking big bets at 25. Well, not 25. It was 25 to one favorite. But uh, and that's the problem here is you can't offset damage done at 25 and 12 to 15, 12 to one. It's just impossible. Yeah, I'll tell you, my two cents on this is uh, I worked for with Woj for many years at the, the Bergen Record, so I can vouch for his integrity. And B, people don't realize this, but um, he's a millionaire himself. So just like it, there's a sense of, wait a minute, freshman players have millions of dollars. They're not going to help some gambler out to get, what, an extra couple thousand dollars. doesn't add up. And that's true for him, too. But there are less prominent sports writers who certainly are not millionaires who God forbid, they've got a medical issue. Their spouse does their parent does. Uh, they might have a gambling problem. They might have a drug problem. There's all kinds of things that might be out there where that person is desperate for money and they don't want to get foreclosed on their house. And if somehow some unscrupulous executive with a team in any sport knows about that and says, Hey, I can take care of you for X grand, you know, all you got to do is, you know, make a claim that this team is going to pick this guy. It's, you know, a desperate person does desperate things. And so it's, that's that's another thing to think about. But I want to ask you about something that technically is not known in advance, like you mentioned, where the couple of half executives do know who the pick is. Uh, we don't know who's going to win Monday's uh, Nathan's hot dog eating contest in Coney Island, but, <laughs> but, I, but I think we do. I think it's going to be Joey Chestnut. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how you feel about, I think New Jersey and Colorado at least have wagering on that. Um, do you have any problems with that? Because like, technically we don't know the winner and B, is it just too silly or do you figure 
let the let the marketplace decide. And if people want to bet, you'll put put a line on anything, basically. Yeah, see, this is where the I think the old guy problem comes into play because yeah. uh, I want to say it's not a sporting event, right? So that's yeah. my first thing. This not, it's because I'm anti the coin toss. I hate putting up the coin toss. Yeah. I think it's the most frivolous thing of all time. It's I think it's embarrassing to put up the coin toss. However, everybody asks for it. So I'm like, that's how I feel about the, I feel about the hot dog eating contest. I'd rather book the hot dog eating contest uh, be, uh, than I would the NBA draft. And the, the reason why is we just talked about the NBA. They're they're telling their their spouses or their friends, and maybe not from a gambling perspective. They're just telling people, yeah. and those people are telling people. So there's there's going to be leaks, and that's when I said somebody obviously knows. They know. You know, they knew who they were going to take. Now, there's caveats there. There might be trades or there might be other issues. But I, I'm I'm less – I and I also think it's easier to control a hot dogging contest. I think you can tell a sharp player, listen, and it's probably going to be totals, right? So it would be 75 hot – whatever the number is. Yeah. And I think you can you can manage that because you can tell a, a sharp player, listen, it's $300. That's all you're getting. And I don't think anybody's going to complain about that. Yeah. I think that's much easier – to control you just don't put up props that are that are going to get you buried like 15 to 1 i wouldn't put up you know over 83 and a half at 25 to 1 you know i mean that makes no sense because for the little that you can win you could get crushed now i don't think he's going to eat 83 hot dogs <laughs> so i'm torn between the the entertainment i think we still are about entertainment i think that's a fun event uh it's just a matter of, can i control that event uh is there integrity is there is how much is it worth uh, to, to just not to throw the match. Uh, I don't know if it's called a match event. <laughs> so, so that, so that's the other problem. So you wouldn't want to put up. So I think, but I think there's ways you can manage that and, and make it fun. Um, but it, it's, like I said, it's it, at the end of the day, I've said this before, it's, it's not really my call. Uh, you know, people want to bet it. It's legal and like the coin toss and, uh, and they want to do it. My job is to put the number up, you know, and I, even though I do it reluctantly and I'm not happy about it, I mean, I could say the same thing with Jake Paul fights. You know, I am not, I think that's, that's just, it's just to me is, is a terrible event to book, but man, if you don't book it, they're going somewhere else that has it. And that's, you know, gets us back to our original point. There's just a, a lot of pressure to book these events. And then the problem is they just, if you lose them on that, they, they would have bet other events, you know, they parlay on this to that. And, and so it, it's, it's something that we really never uh, dealt with John um, in years past. Cause I, I think Nevada did a lot of things wrong. Um, and that's why I, you know, I've said on Twitter too, that, you know, that it, it migrated from Europe uh, West instead of what I thought would be Nevada going East. And uh, I think that's why, because, I think we were some of some of it was gaming saying no to everything, and then some of it was just there was no upside for us to put these type of props up because if we got hurt we'd all get in trouble. So, uh, and I think that hurt us in the long run. So, and now we're playing catch up. Between the uh, Holyfield Tyson one reference and the Jake Paul fight reference, I'm I'm getting the sense you you know you're boxing a little bit, which uh, makes me think you know off off air you and I might want to talk some fights sometimes. I won't <laughs> I won't uh, I, I won't drag the podcast down with it. But are are you a boxing guy or you just happen to randomly hit on two boxing references? Well, to, yeah, because they're, they're you know relevant. But I, I I was a huge boxing guy. I mean, the the fights in Nevada were were spectacular. I always say if it's not a championship fight in Nevada, it's not a championship fight. You know, and uh, and then just the electrifying fights we had. But honestly, now, Eric, as you know, uh, UFC's taken over. I mean, 
it's, I never in my wildest dreams would have uh, believed that boxing would go the way of horse racing. And that's what's happened. I mean, right. I lumped boxing in with baseball, you know, it's just yep. a matter of time. Well, you just, um, you just named the big three sports from a hundred years ago, <laughs> yes. boxing, baseball, and horse racing. <laughs> and, and now it's the eating contest. So, I mean, it's just, right. it's just, it's just changed without change with it. You know? Right. So. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of uh, not quite mainstream type of sports, I, I see that you follow the WNBA closely. Um, wh- where does women's basketball rank among your favorite sports? And, and is there a lot of growth potential for WNBA betting? Um, it's my favorite sport, bar none. Okay. Um, I, I watched almost exclusively the WNBA. I watched uh, eight hours of it on Sunday uh, last week or the week before. Wow. I watched every game. I have the league pass. I have season tickets to the Aces here. <laughs> um, the Storm are my favorite team because I consider myself in Washington State. So I, I love it. I think there's tremendous amount of growth. They need. Uh, they have 12 teams. They need to get to 16. We're already seeing with PASPA being repealed uh, the effects of betting um, how betting helps uh, people watch the games, go to the games. Uh, so we, we see a, a lot more bets on it. We're actually booking women's basketball, college basketball now, a lot more games. Not all of them, but, you know, the, my dream always was to book women's college basketball like we did men's. And, and we haven't got there yet, but I think we're booking, you know, 20, 30 games a day now um, in New Jersey and, and D.C. So, I'm really excited about that. So I think there's tremendous amount of uh, growth. I think if people watch it, they like it. It's just, a, you know, it's just a lot of people don't want to give it a chance. Uh, I, I started watching women's basketball because we didn't have a lot of money on it. So I can watch it without sweating the game because it's hard to watch football at the end or basketball at the end when you have, you know, potentially six figure, um, you know, differences riding on the outcome and or swings on the outcome. It's hard to watch it. Like the Yankees, scoring four runs in the bottom of the ninth uh, last week against Houston. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to watch that. I don't, I just, just tell me the final score and I'm fine. So I started migrating towards women's basketball because very minimal bets on it. And then I just obviously fell in love with it. And, uh, and I've been watching ever since. And I'm a huge, you know, my dream is to retire in, in the Portland area and bring a team, bring the Portland fire back. I want to, get the WNBA up to at least 16 teams and I'm hoping Portland's one of those teams and any way I can help. And then my goal is to uh, watch the fire play in the summer, then obviously go to Oregon, Oregon state games during the, uh, during the fall uh, women's games. I, I don't really care about the men's teams, uh, <laughs> right. but uh, that's, that's, that's the long-term goal. I guess it's short-term now because I'm getting up there. So <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, in, in the long, strange history on our podcast of, of name dropping, John does it more often than I do, but you, you, you opened the door here for me to do a weird one is that I went to uh, college with Sue Bird's older sister who was talking at the time about her younger sister in high school, who was some big uh, uh, college basketball prospect. And we were like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm sure she's a, sure she's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she was correct. Wasn't she? I mean, yes. that's uh, unbelievable. And the landscape's going to change with her. And obviously at some point Tarazi gone. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Robert, I, I'll mention, you mentioned the 12 teams and how manageable it is for betters. And I've been doing well with the USFL this year and the eight teams. And uh, my preseason pick of the Philadelphia stars at 12 to one is riding into the championship game. So uh, <laughs> there's a little something to that aside from the aesthetics, enjoying the, the sport itself, um, the opportunity to, to really get your handle around a, a limited number of teams and also the, 
you know, lesser amount of sharps, perhaps, and uh, even the lesser amount of expertise in, in some sports books cases have with lines. So that's good. But uh, one more old, possible old man topic for you is uh, I used to, uh, you know, yell, get off my lawn at parlay players. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I've kind of come around a little bit. We've had a couple of guests on who have spoken in some defense of it. And I realized, you know, on my rare trips to a liquor store, uh, you know, I'll see somebody bet 50, 60 bucks at a time on a lottery that doesn't seem like they can possibly afford that. So I figure, look, if you're going to just transfer your money from the lottery to parlay sports betting, it gives you an illusion of control and you can watch something rather than just, you know, the 11 o'clock news, or if they still do that, I don't know. And the ball spin around and you, you're looking at your ticket. I remember about one ticket in my life. I'm looking at the ticket and none of the numbers match. And I felt like an idiot. So if you're going to transfer that money over to parlay betting, I'm okay with it. But do you, uh, I mean, if you're a sports, if you're a bookmaker, you like parlays, but just from the aesthetics of it, do you think it's a good idea? Do you recommend it to people? So I, I think the, 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 if, you're gonna, if your goal is to be a professional player, then no, right? Unless you have advantages, multiple advantages, uh, or you can bet correlated parlays, right? If, you can, if somebody lets you have correlated, then absolutely. I think, though, I think though the, the key is entertainment, right? So, um, you know, I would say, you know, you go to a movie, I, I don't even know what it is now, $15 to go to a movie, and you may or may not like it, right? But if you bet $15 on a, on a, on a basketball game, uh, you got you you're into the game, right? So now you're really emotionally invested into the game, and you have a 50-50 chance of doubling your money. It's whereas you don't like the movie, you're out 15 bucks. No, you know you're not going to get a refund. So I think that the, there's this there's this entertainment value to sports betting that doesn't exist in other areas. And and I think if you if you if you want to take five dollars and put a you know bet a three team or a four teamer to to try to get a, you know try to have a decent score, I think that's fine. However you know, I tell everybody, you know, if, you, if you're interested in money management and making your bankroll last longer, whether you have a $300 bankroll or, you know, a $30,000 bankroll, you're better off playing straight bets. Uh, but I don't think, you know, it's just not, it's just not sexy, I guess, for people to go home and say, hey, I just hit a straight bet and won $11. You know, they, they all want to say, I hit that big parlay. And, you know, we, we make money off of parlays. We do better yeah. off of parlays. But I, I, I think as long as you manage it and you 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 mostly bet straight bets, that's the way to go. Um, and, and and you try to even if you're a ten dollar player, try to get the best number. You know if you can. I mean, it doesn't hurt. You know to lay three instead of three and a half if you have multiple outs. The problem with smaller betters is they don't have multiple outs. You know, and uh, but I, I think the same thing applies to a small player as it does to a big player. As is half, you know, but have fun. You know, this is recreation. Don't ever lose more than you can afford to win. Uh, we're not the lottery. You know, we're at a, we're at a, you know, a, on straight bets, we're at a four percent hold. That's it. And if you get a better number, maybe you're you're only betting into a new a two percent negative expectation. Where the lottery, what is it, seventy percent? I don't even know what the lottery is. But it's uh, a lot. Bad. It's worse than parties. <laughs> <Pretty bad. laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's some great uh, advice for, for betters to, to end on there in terms of uh, not betting over your head and uh, trying to have fun with it. Um, so uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us, Robert. I will note uh, anyone wants to follow you on Twitter can find you at Robert USF Sports. Uh, thanks again for, for coming on the podcast. It was great talking to you. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it, guys. Anytime. All right. Thanks, Robert. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll.
Let's update our betting bankroll. And man, oh man, John, this was our bloodbath week. We were oh for everything. Just a, a complete disaster. Uh, <laughs> it's a good thing we have day jobs to fall back on. Anyway, let's take it bet by bet. Uh, you lost your status as the king of USFL sharps, putting $50 on the general's money line and $110 on the breakers plus five points. Those were both close defeats, uh, although you still have your Philadelphia Stars title bet to potentially make it back and then some. Mm-hmm. On golf, you lost $30 on a long shot bet on Sam Burns to win outright, $50 on Neiman for top 20. Those were both dead heading into the weekend. And then we lost $50 in more heartbreaking fashion on Seamus Power top 20 as he was in the top 20 all tournament until a Sunday collapse and came up one stroke short. Uh, and my boxing bet did as poorly as your golf and USFL bets as I parlayed Jessica McCaskill by decision with Murajan Akhmadaliyev to win. And they did both win, but I got the by decision part wrong as McCaskill dominated her opponent who quit on her stool after the third round. So we lost $154 on that. And to add insult to injury, Apparently, I cursed the Cleveland Guardians last week, betting them at plus 300 to win the AL Central. They held a one-game lead. They proceeded to lose five straight after that bet and are now two games back of the Twins. But at least that doesn't hurt our bankroll yet. In terms of the immediate impact, we lost $444 on the week, and we are now $3,501 in the hole. We have $870 on hold in futures bets. That leaves us with $5,629 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Yeah. Ouch. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, it's time for the USFL title game. Okay. And do I hedge on my preseason Philadelphia Stars bet, or do I double down for all the Tostitos? I was open to either direction, pending a little research. Now, the six and four stars are taking on the nine and one Birmingham Stallions in Canton, Ohio, in this one. Uh, the Stallions won an early regular season matchup, 31-17, but it was closer than the score looks like. And the stars had just switched quarterbacks, were settling in. I considered the over-under of 45.5 points, but the Stallions defense and the stars offense are USFL best in class, so I'm not sure what to make of that class. So um, give me 110 to win 100 on the Stars, plus four and a half points, and hope they win outright. But if not, I suppose that's a little hedge after all. Uh, this would be a three-peat for the Stars in the USFL, by the way, as yeah. they won back in 1984 in Philadelphia and again in 1985 after moving to Baltimore before the original USFL went belly up. So let's go for the three-peat. <laughs> Does it count yeah. as a three-peat if there's like a 37-year <laughs> yeah, yeah, gap yeah, in between titles? I'm pushing, I'm pushing it there. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I'm going to place a couple of Wimbledon bets. Uh, I consulted with the two people I know who pay semi-close attention to tennis. Our boss, Adam Small, and my brother, Dave, asked them if they had any suggestions. Adam gave me a single match bet, but as we record, that match is already well underway. So uh, I bet it in real life, took a little flyer on a plus 385 underdog he thought had value, but we can't use it here on the podcast. My brother gave me several futures-type bets, some of which also won't work out timing-wise, but two of them will. Uh, my brother likes American Francis Tiafo, the 23rd seed on the men's side, to win his quarter of the bracket at plus 500. The path looks reasonably clear. There's only one higher seed, ninth-seeded Cameron Norrie, still alive in that quarter. So let's do $30 to win 150 on Tiafo. 
And then on the women's side, third seed Anz Jabur of Tunisia. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Couldn't find it uh, anywhere online. Uh, Anz Jabur of Tunisia is now the favorite to reach the finals from her half of the draw. She doesn't have top seeded Iga Sviatek on her side of the draw. She's plus 170 to get to the finals. So let's do $50 to win 85 on Jabur. Yeah, it's amazing. I covered 15 U.S. Opens and uh, I, I'm not sure I heard, ever heard of any of the players. Just names. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it was a while ago now that I think right. about it. So now look, it ain't pretty, but it's about all I have in New Jersey in terms of golf, uh, men's golf anyway. Uh, it's the poorly timed John Deere Classic in Illinois, which clearly got a lot of well Deere John letters from the PGA Tour's mm. top player. Not They can't make it. So the favorites are former U.S. Open champion Webb Simpson, a decent name, I guess. And Adam Hadwin, who, hey, he's one of Canada's best golfers. So there's that. He's not even the <laughs> best golfer in Canada. But anyway, um, so I'm going to go with South Africa's Christian Bezidenheit. I'm bluffing there. But uh, <laughs> for 50 at top 10 at plus 300 and 50 for top 20 at plus 140. You know, in the Valley of the Blind, Eric, the one-eyed man is king. And that's Christian. Um, finally, let's play 20 on rising star Cam Davis at 40 to 1. That would help the bankroll. Yes, it would. Okay. Um, so let's see how much I've learned about golf. When you uh, say that uh, the, the Hadwin isn't necessarily the top golfer out of Canada, I'm just going to take a guess. The only other Canadian golfer coming to mind who I'd never heard of before uh, recent discussions on the podcast is Corey Connors, the top Canadian golfer. That's the one. That's the All man. Right. You got it. See, You're look at me. I'm, I'm yeah. coming along. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so I split my tennis betting into two smaller bets. I'll do the same with a Thursday baseball game. Uh, Going to go with what I know, my Phillies, finishing out their home series against the Red Hot Braves. Atlanta took the first two. The Phils have Aaron Nola on the mound today against Ian Anderson. I kind of think my team steps up here and avoids the sweep. They are favored. And I'm not going to lay minus 150-ish on the win. Instead, I'll take the run line, which pays at plus 140. So we do $50 to win $70 that the Phillies win this one by two or more. And on top of that, a small player prop. Kyle Schwarber has homered in four of his last seven games. He's hit 11 home runs so far in the month of June. And the lineup for today isn't out yet, but they've been batting him leadoff with some regularity. So solid chance he gets five at bats. And it seems he's decided since Bryce Harper's broken thumb that he's the guy who needs to step up. The highest I found is plus 290 on him to hit a homer. I don't know that I'd call that value exactly, but it's close enough and it's a fun bet and we'll go small. $30 to win $87 if Schwarbs hits a homer. Uh, it could be worse, John. I could be trying to parlay these two bets together. <laughs> there you go. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Robert Walker. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, by the time you hear this, my tweaking of the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement should be posted on njonlinegambling.com. You see, I can bet that John Deere Classic I mentioned, which has no players ranked at top 50 in the world. But in Portland, Oregon, the Live Tour, uh, LIV Tour, uh, backed by the Saudi government, um, they have a pro golf event with Brooks Kepka, Patrick Reed, Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia. But I can't bet on that here. Well, I could on DraftKings to name one popular sports book in, oh, New Hampshire, Illinois, Oregon, Wyoming, Arizona, Connecticut, and the province of Ontario. 
you know, as to whether is this a serious event out here in our Oregon? Is that why you can't bet it? Uh, the $4 million first prize is significantly larger than any the PGA Tour has ever offered for an event. It's almost double what uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick just got for winning the U.S. Open. So is this a grip and grin or hit and giggle uh, for that money with that level of competition? Not a chance. So while the DGE overall does a solid job, clearly, they dropped the ball this week and they need to pick it up before this offbeat Saudi-funded tour resumes in late July with an event in North Jersey of all places. And guess what? I'm betting that they will. And with that, until next time, gamble on and go Bezoidenheit. Bezoidenheit.